Your commitment to excellence as an organizational leader will ultimately dictate your equitable standing amongst your internal and external stakeholders. It will demonstrate how seriously you take the process of learning, growing, and prospering as someone in power. For the purposes of this discussion, I want to zero in on the promise of prosperity and productivity at work and how leaders of all shapes and sizes, regardless of how big or small, you see your organization in your eyes can succeed and sustain a position of admiration, respect, and camaraderie amongst your co-workers and your superiors. According to a study published by Forbes and the Harvard Business Review, it found having a diverse workforce means happier employees, customers feel more respected, and managers have greater access to the talent they need to fill vacant positions and for their organizations to truly have a chance to thrive. The study also reveals diverse companies have a 19% higher rate when it comes to innovation revenue and profitability, which truly demonstrates just how powerful the embracing of diversity can truly be. For my friend Bernadette Smith, she's been on the front lines of the fight for diversity, equity, and inclusion at work for over 10 years. This ex-wedding planner turned disability advocate has spoken in front of thousands of business leaders who are enthusiastic and her expertise has been sought after by the likes of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Fast Company. She's appeared on the Today Show, National Public Radio, CNN, and many more. She's also taken home the honor of being named a notable LGBTQ executive by Crane's Chicago Business. Her fourth book, Inclusive 360, Proven Solutions for an Equitable Organization, was an instant bestseller. Smith also has her own weekly podcast entitled Five Things in 15 Minutes which is intended to bring good vibes surrounding everything that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Smith, join me this week to have that very discussion on what it's going to take to continue to move forward the needle of progress when it comes to DE&I at work. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation.
couple of minutes to welcome you to the show. And I'm super excited to talk to you all about inclusion in the workplace. Great to see you this morning. And thank you for a few minutes. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, uh, Bernadette, I know that we share a mutual passion for advocating for diversity in all forms in the workplace. So tell me, what do you think it means to really have an inclusive and diverse uh, workplace culture throughout your organization? Well, it means that your employees feel like they can thrive, feel like they're set up for success um, because their manager understands how to talk to them and their coworkers are not racist and don't have micro, don't drop microaggressions. And it means that they don't have to think about those other things, the things that make them different at work. They can just be themselves and do their best work. And as a result, um, the company's going to have greater outcomes. They're going to have higher productivity. They're going to have less turnover. They're going to just be set up for greater success. Now, of course, it uh, we're not wired. To, you would think that we would be wired just by to be sort of kind and respectful and and all of that. But it, it takes some like a lot of awareness to really create that kind of culture. Yeah, absolutely. So in your judgment, I'm also curious to ask you about the importance of starting a conversation with the employees that you already have on staff about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do you think we start that conversation with the employees or staff that we already have? It's a great question, Kevin. I think one of the ways we do that is we can certainly, one way to certainly do it easy, the easiest way to do it is to bring in an external speaker or someone who can get the conversation started. Um, so maybe if you don't have the budget for an external speaker, which hopefully a lot of organizations do, but uh, you know, have a book discussion, a book, uh, a, a book topic or a documentary film screening or a biopic film screening about something related to a diversity related topic and then have a discussion about it and sort of start there. You, you use something else as a conversation starter. If it's a, something horrible that happened in the news, use that as a conversation starter. But acknowledge that these conversations are not necessarily easy. Acknowledge the discomfort. Acknowledge that we're all still learning. I think it's really important for managers to admit what they don't know and to be really clear that they're on this learning journey as well, but they have, they want to do the right thing. Yeah, and for the, uh, just following up on this, what do you think it means to have true uh, workplace allyship within the workforce? What do you think that means? I think it means that we are genuinely kindly curious about one another. And we're taking the time to get to know each other as individuals and what e each individual might need that could be different, whether that's because they're neurodiverse or because they are a caregiver at home or because they, um, you know, have mobility challenges, whatever it happens to be. I think allyship is really about meeting people where they're at and understanding more about each individual so that we can set them up for success 
And it's something that we can do peer to peer. Yes, it's something that managers can do, but it's something that we can do peer to peer just by being kindly curious about the people around us. Uh, absolutely. You know, part of that, one of the reasons talking about inclusion in the workplace is so important to me from a personal perspective is because, you know, at the age of nine, Bernadette, I was told that because of the severity of the cerebral palsy I was born with, that I wouldn't uh, be able to walk without assistance for the duration of my life. And when I, I first graduated college, uh, so I graduated with a journalism degree. And when I first graduated college, it took me uh, six years uh, to get my first paying job as a journalist because uh, news directors would look at me and tell me that I had a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the news business. But because of my uh, disability, they viewed me as a liability in the workplace. So I graduated college in 2010. Obviously, we, we've come a long way uh, since that point. But I'm curious, uh, just based on your professional opinion, what do you think it's going to take to break down those barriers for individuals with disabilities, specifically to succeed at work? I think that it's going to take more of us to know people with disabilities and to really uh, have that sort of personal connection to the issue so that we have more empathy. Um, I think it's really easy to not have empathy when you are siloed and when you're surrounding yourselves with surrounding yourself with people who are like us. And I think that's our natural default state is to surround ourselves with people who are like us. It's a form of unconscious bias. It goes back to our lizard brain. Um, and so I think that, you know, one of the ways that we're going to set people with disabilities up for success at work is to have a greater understanding of what those needs are. Um, I think that we're starting to see more and more neurodiverse talent valued at work. Um, you know, the math brains uh, that are so highly prized by corporate America and tech specifically. Um, and I think that the needs of neurodiverse talent, which are starting to become more widely uh, accepted, um, I think those are going to kind of open the way for greater acceptance of people with other disabilities in the workplace. So even though, you know, the, here in the US, the American with Disabilities Act from the, I think it's the this 1970s, you know, it made some things a little bit better. Um, smaller organizations aren't required to comply with that proactively. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to do. Um, but I think that neurodiverse inclusion is going to make it a little bit easier for everyone. And because that is so valued right now. Yeah, absolutely. And but I also wanted to talk to you about rethinking leadership structure at work and putting more diverse people in leadership positions because it's a way to start the conversation about developing an organizational culture that is valued by everyone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a, a very easy excuse that a lot of organizations are, are sort of towing a line and saying that we don't have 
underrepresented talent high enough in our leadership pipeline to put those folks in leadership positions, which is of course an excuse and it's something that can be corrected. Um, having internal leadership development programs or external that are brought in. Um, but I think that it's going to be critically important because the world is incredibly diverse, right? And so we need leaders who understand the diverse needs of their increasingly diverse customers. And so I think it's really important to have um, people in leadership roles who really understand, who have, who have a greater capacity to have empathy because of their own lived experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And what about what do you think it means to create a competitive advantage in work? I think it means that you are really willing to listen to your employees and have a and and focus on your culture and having a, a, a wonderful culture where people feel included, where you're focusing on inclusion first. I think is going to be a competitive advantage because when you focus on inclusion first, you're going to get more folks from underrepresented groups who want to work there. You're going to get more folks from underrepresented groups who want to stay there, who don't want to leave. And as a result, you're going to have um, a much, again, a much broader talent pool, a much broader uh, perspective that you can bring to your customers and your clients. That means that you're going to better understand the marketplace because you have such a diversity of perspective. And that is all a competitive advantage. Yeah. So starting with inclusion first. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a transitioning for a moment just to the job seekers perspective, I'm curious to ask you about morale as a job seeker in today's job market. What do you think is the key, the key to making sure that the morale of the job seeker remains high, whether they have a disability or not? I think it's going to be really important. It is really important to communicate with your job seekers, with your applicants, because I think a lot of, I, I mean, I can speak just from having conversations with my friends who have been looking for jobs is that they get ghosted all the time. Even after they have two interviews, three interviews, they get ghosted or it takes a very long time for decisions to be made. So a lack of communication on the part of the employer really does tend to be a big morale a defeater um, amongst the job seekers. So I think being really proactive in how you communicate is gonna be key remember your values you know employers need to live their values if they have values that are stated on their website that are part of who they identify i mean they have to practice those values and make sure all of their employees understand the values including those at hr especially those in hr um so that the job seekers can be set up for success yeah absolutely and you know Bernard, i also wanted to ask you about the idea of prosperity at work and how do you really define prosperous leadership? What do you think that means to you? Prosperous leadership. Um, I think prosperous leadership is really sharing the abundance of leadership and sharing, sharing the power, knowing that um, we are all stronger together and that leadership doesn't have to be this um, autocratic kind of thing but that the power can be shared. Prosperous leadership, prosperous leaders put people in the room where it happens. They invite, they invite underrepresented folks 
to participate in stretch assignments. They take a chance on people who are different from them because they're willing to share the power and they don't have the type of ego that's that where, where they need to be the one that's making all of the decisions or having all of the influence. They're willing to listen to others and get, take a chance on others, especially those from tr traditionally marginalized groups. Yeah, and burn it up, they tell me that you were a, form, a former wedding planner and now you've uh, uh, completely uh, transitioned to talking about diversity. So tell me, how did the former wedding planner go from uh, uh, doing that and planning centerpieces to uh, talking <laughs> about diversity? Tell me all about it. Sure. Well, I started my wedding planning business in 2004 in the state of Massachusetts in the U.S., which was right around when same-sex marriage became legal in, in uh, Ontario, Canada, actually. Um, and so it, Massachusetts was the first state in the country uh, to have marriage equality for same-sex couples. And I decided to start a business to really advocate for those couples to help them feel safe when navigating a very traditional industry. Um, back then, there was very little support. Only about a third of Americans supported same-sex marriage. So it was really um, a matter of helping those couples feel safe. So that was how I started my business. Um, I, as time went on, I ended up doing a lot of speaking and writing and training, consulting folks in the wedding, hospitality, and travel industry so they also could be more LGBTQ inclusive. So I really started my diversity, equity, and inclusion journey um, in that industry, consulting with other companies, small and large, on how they could be more inclusive. And so, you know, as time went on, I retired as a wedding planner and started focusing more on the business side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, talking about the business side of things, what, you know, Bernadette, if I give you a budget of a million dollars and I said I wanted you to create a commercial about diversity training at work uh, so that organizations can really demonstrate their commitment to diversity. Diversity, how do you think you would structure that commercial? A commercial, all right. Well, I guess I would structure it like one of my keynotes. Um, and I think that what folks forget is that, um, or don't even, don't realize is that part of the mistake that we make is uh, about others is we make assumptions about folks. So I start my keynote by talking about mistaken assumptions that I've made. So I will start this commercial by showing little clips of people making mistaken assumptions about others in customer service scenarios, making a mistaken assumption about someone on their team, maybe making a uh, mistaken assumption about the someone's the, the gender of their partner, of about their race, or about their religion, or asking things like, where are you from, kind of mistaken assumptions about people's background. So having these sort of little clips of mistaken assumptions, because we can all relate to kind of having put our foot in our mouths at one point. So sort of doing that type. And then how do we move into solutions? Well, let's talk about the ARC method. The ARC method stands for Ask, Respect, Connect. It's a tool I created and wrote about in my book called Inclusive 360, and it's about gentle curio curiosity. So let's, you know, I, the commercial would then introduce the ARC method as a solution to those mistaken assumptions and replay those scenarios from the beginning, those little scenes, 
except using the arc method. So it's all wrapped up. Uh, begin uh, beginning three arc three arc play. Yeah, absolutely. And Bernard, how do you think uh, companies can really judge or evaluate their commitment to diversity? So how how can they uh, sort of put into place those key performance indicators to really know if their diversity strategy is really working? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, some of the things they can look at can be turnover, uh, turnover by race, by gender, um, by age, by role. Um, they can look at turn. They can look at um, employee engagement survey data. So every year, at least, they should conduct an employee engagement survey and have questions that specifically relate to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And uh, and so for that. Um, you know, they can look at that data and, and cross-reference that data with the demographic information of the respondents and sort of see what's the experience that people of color are having at the company versus white people, men versus women, um, and so forth. So those are a couple of key performance indicators to look at. Um, certainly looking at the percentage of underrepresented folks at different roles within the company, so just straight diversity statistics. Um, one of the things that I really like to focus on in the work that I do is not necessarily the, um, the demographic data, but the systems data. So what are the systems that are preventing historically marginalized folks from succeeding at work? What are, how can we look at the systems to identify gaps in equity and inclusion? And when we change the systems, instead of just focusing heavily on training, when we change the systems, we can embed equity and inclusion into the structure of how the organization is run. And it becomes a much more sustainable DEI effort. Yeah, absolutely. And Bernard, what are you, or how would you define a truly forward-thinking organization? What does that mean to you? Um, it means to me that they are willing to take a stand on hot button political issues. They're willing to take a stand to both internally and externally um, in favor of reproductive rights, in favor of racial justice, in favor of LGBTQ plus equity and inclusion, um, that these are companies who are willing to bet on being on the right side of history. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for any job seeker that's looking to land their dream job, whether they have a disability or whether they don't, you know, uh, Bernadette, I always tell job seekers that uh, life is a constant game of networking. So how do you think a job seeker can optimize their networking ability to land the job they really want. Practice. I mean, that's really the only way to do it. I, I certainly struggled with networking early in my career. Um, it's something that can be terrifying, you know, to go into a room of strangers and start conversations is terrifying, um, especially when you have when you're trying to earn business or when you're trying to earn a job like it when you have something at stake and the stakes are really high 
Um, you know, walking into a room of strangers is terrifying. And the only way that I know of to really get better at it is to practice. Um, there is a book that I can recommend by Robbie Samuels called Croissants Versus Bagels, and it is a book on networking um, for job seekers and not. Um, I think the principles are the same. You know, it's just the places that you're showing up that are different. Um, but I think the concepts of networking are the same. And I think that it's just important to develop that as a skill, even if it's online networking. It doesn't have to be in person. I, yeah, you know, I, I do some motivational speaking myself. And, you know, LinkedIn has been sort of a, a, a lifeline for me to make connections. It's a powerful tool if you know how to online network, isn't it? Absolutely. I think I think one thing that people um, forget is that they can use their voice on LinkedIn. They can write. I mean, if, if writing is something that someone is good at, then I think that using LinkedIn um, and LinkedIn uh, algorithms reward people who write a lot. So um, longer posts on LinkedIn seem to do well. And I think that that's a, a smart approach for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Bernie, we talked earlier about equality in the workplace, but I also want to talk to you about equity for women and equity overall in the workplace. How do you think we can create more equitable or socially responsible workplaces? What are, what's your thoughts there? Um, I think one thing that's really important, is, well, a couple, I mean, one thing that's really important is pay equity. So <laughs> let's take care of that. <laughs> I mean, want to make sure that there's a pay equity audit and that uh, women and non-binary folks are compensated at the same rate as men. Um, I think that's, that's incredibly important. Um, so that's certainly the first thing that comes to mind. Um, another thing I think is important here is benefits, uh, and particularly caregiver benefits, flexible work benefits, the types of benefits that are uh, childcare benefits um, and subsidies, because you know women are disproportionately in in caregiver roles, and and I think that it's really important to be to offer them flexibility that's going to allow them to succeed um, both in the workplace and at home. And, and it's not just women who will benefit. Um, so I think that that's going to be flexible work benefits are particularly important for women as well as pay equity. Just a couple. Yeah, absolutely. And just diving into that uh, uh, flexible work benefits, as you and I both know here in Canada, uh, Bernadette, we have what's called paid family leave, which I know is something that is uh, on top of mind for uh, President Biden, and I know it's something that you're you're passionately dedicated to advocating for as well. So, what do you think it's going to take to really wake up the political arena uh, to get them to enact paid family leave in the states? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I have no idea. The politics in the U.S. are uh, not driven by compassion. Um, they are they're driven by power. And so I really, I mean, I can't believe that we don't have paid family, guaranteed paid family leave across all 50 states. Um, so I, yeah, I, I got no answers for you there, Kevin. I wish. Yeah, it, it's a, 
conversation that we have to continue to have, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And, uh, <laughs> uh, this issue is certainly proving that, right? Exactly. And I think that it just gives, um, you know, it, it allows corporations and, and organizations to fill in that gap. They have to fill in that gap. Um, so obviously it's putting pressure on them when the government doesn't, uh, when it's not mandated. So they really have to do it to maintain a competitive advantage. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Bernard, I want to give you uh, the platform to tell me all about your book, Inclusive 360, and the podcast that you host, because I know it's all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, oh, the floor is yours to tell me about those two things. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, so my book is called Inclusive 360, Proven Solutions for an Equitable Organization. And it's a really action-packed, practical book that focuses on the systems that I was talking about earlier. So it's looking at solutions to build more equity and inclusion into various HR processes, but product design, marketing, facilities, uh, certainly training and leadership development, but really looking at the entire organization and how do we build equity and inclusion beyond HR, but little tips um, for the rest of the company. Procurement, I mean, so there's a section on supplier diversity. So it, it takes examples from leading organizations around the world that are doing this right. So the book is, is full of practical examples. And a lot of those examples come from the newsletter that I write and the podcast that I produce. So every Friday, I write a newsletter called Five Things. It goes out on Saturday morning. And it's all about bringing good vibes to DEI. It's about celebrating what's going right, focusing on how we can do more of what's working and it's really, really building on successes. So I find stories, some of them are public policies and laws, um, but I find stories from organizations that, that are in the news, they're, they're fresh stories um, of things that are going well. And I share those stories each week. And then on Monday, so right after this, I'll be uh, recording my own podcast I release a podcast called Five Things in 15 Minutes, and a guest and I talk about those five stories that I found, and we just sort of riff on the news and those stories and how uh, we can use those good vibes to build a better world, a more inclusive world. Of course, we have to acknowledge the oppression as well, um, because it's foolish not to. We have to, we have to, we are, I'm not going to bury my head in the sand, um, but I also want to celebrate what's working. and so. How do we do more of that? So that's something I'm very passionate about. I think a lot of folks get overwhelmed by DEI and it, it feels especially a lot of, you know, kind of well-meaning white folks or, or non-well-meaning white folks. They just don't really see how it all fits together. And my goal is to share stories to kind of demystify it and to help folks see how it all fits together. And it's how it's not just about human resources. Yeah, and, and I, you know, Bernadette, one of the reasons I wanted to start my own podcast is I looked at the world and I told myself that there has to be more that binds us together than rather than tearing us apart. So how do you think, you know, I call it uh, creating more bridges of unity. So how do you think we do that from a workplace and societal perspective? I think we, we 
create more bridges of unity by gentle curiosity about people who are different from us, by looking for ways that we can find things in common, find joy to celebrate. Uh, and I think that's that's how we do it. It's about looking for common ground and being open to surrounding ourselves or at least meeting people and interacting with people who are different from us. Yeah, and uh, in the few minutes, uh, Bernadette, that I have left with you, I'm curious to uh, um, get your opinion on if people are watching or listening to this today. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, what are tangible steps the average person can take to really join in the fight of diversity, equity, and inclusion? What are your thoughts there? I think the average person can do a few things that are quite simple. Um, one is to diversify the content that you consume. So look at the podcasts that you listen to, the books that you read, the shows that you watch, the movies that you watch, and and expand that a bit. You know, look for uh, other types of content to consume by Black creators, by Native American creators, all these different LGBTQ+, all of these different types of creators who have something important to say listen to that expose yourself to different types of media um, i think that that's certainly been really beneficial to me um, another thing i would say is again to have this gentle curiosity about others to ask respect connect so you can follow the arc you, you can have uh I'll, I'll give you the arc method cheat sheet if you go to the equality institute.com slash arc hyphen method um, you can download the ARC method, ARC method cheat sheet. It's going to have conversation starters. So how to help you have a gentle conversation with someone who's different, just showing that sort of gentle curiosity, asking open-ended questions, respecting what you hear, and connecting that back um, all together following the ARC is a really simple thing that anyone can do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think those two things are free. Um, they're easy. And they're going to really move the needle in terms of how you experience the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Bernadette, my final question for you today has to do with your own personal and professional legacy and how you want your legacy to be defined. Wow, big question, my legacy. Um, you know, I really feel like I made a huge difference in the wedding industry. Um, I really did make a big difference in that work. And I was in the wedding industry for 14 years. I did a lot uh, towards advancing equity and inclusion. And I, um, and so I have fulfilled my purpose, um, but I'm still fulfilling it. Like I, if I were to die tomorrow, I would know that I made a big impact, but I still have a lot to say. Um, a lot to say about how we treat each other and how we can create systems where everyone can succeed. So I'm, I'm working on my second chapter now, um, the second half of my career and beyond. So uh, my legacy is about really amplifying the voices of folks who don't always get the, don't always have the privilege uh, to share their words and get in the rooms that I get into. Yeah, I tell you, life is about uh, continuing to evolve and allowing the groundwork for future uh, generations to uh, experience prosperity, isn't it? 
It sure is. Absolutely. When uh, the a rising tide lifts all boats, I definitely believe that. Absolutely. And brother, that father tell me if people want to get connected with you, what's the best way they can do that? If you go to BernadetteSmith.com, uh, you'll see my speaker page. You can see my speaker reel. You'll see links uh, to my book and my newsletter and the, and the, and the header, Good Vibes and DEI. And uh, you can go from there. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Well, Bernadette, that, as you know, we uh, share a mutual passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. That I could have talked to you for a couple more hours on the subject, but I'll stop our <laughs> conversation there. And just thank you for the work that you do for uh, the DEI community and for uh, the LGBTQ plus community as well, my friend. Your work in the space and time on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want thank to thank you, so you much, for Kevin. being here today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Kevin. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much.